Good morning. Good morning to our viewers online as well. Today's Palm Sunday. Uh, we have a standalone message today. Next Sunday is Easter. It's a standalone message. And then the following week, we launch into a new series on the book of Nehemiah. So um, I want to encourage you again, as I, uh, I did before, that Easter is really a wonderful time to invite your unchurched friends uh, to church. And uh, particularly, I encourage you to bring them for the free breakfast at 8 o'clock. So, um, so today, Palm Sunday, this is the day we remember Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. It marks the beginning of what we, we often call Holy Week, um, which of course ends in Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. Um, it's a relatively short story that appears in all four Gospels. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. He gets onto a donkey and he rides into town. Tons of people are cheering, they're excited, they're acknowledging him as king. They're spreading their cloaks and palm branches on the road. They're waving their palm branches as he, as he rides into the city. That's the scene for Palm Sunday. But there's also something much bigger happening here. Um, in verse 16 of our scripture today, it says this. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. We may not understand it either. So I want to give you some insights today into that bigger thing that is happening as Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem. Then I want to talk about what that means to us today, practically. So first this, Jerusalem was, and still is, the central city of Judaism. It was where all the powerful Jewish leaders were. When Jesus proclaimed to be the prophesied Messiah, the Son of God, really the people, they could just shrug that off. They could just choose to ignore it. As long as Jesus stayed in those small, rural, kind of backwater towns in Israel. It'd be like if, if someone lived in Fergus Falls and traveled around to the small kind of surrounding towns claiming to be the president of the United States, right? And now that person finally decides to go to Washington, D.C. and make their claim. So Jesus coming to Jerusalem was a bold and dangerous political statement. And the disciples knew it. Mark chapter 10, verse 32 to 34 says this. They were now on the way up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were filled with awe, and the people following behind were overwhelmed with fear. Taking the 12 disciples aside, Jesus once again, or once more, began to describe everything that was about to happen to him. Listen, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem, where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip, 
and kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. So Jesus is going to Jerusalem in order to be betrayed, in order to be captured. He will be tortured. He will die a horrific death. It's an execution. But he's also going there to be resurrected. And in doing so, he will defeat the devil and the kingdom of darkness. He will defeat sin and he will defeat death itself. He's going to Jerusalem to bring about the very first Easter. Of course, the crowds who greeted Jesus had a different idea. Uh, In their minds, Jesus coming to Jerusalem was him finally coming into political power. Uh, For three years, he'd been talking about the kingdom of God and how he was the prophesied son of man that's mentioned in Daniel chapter 7. Here is that prophecy. It says, As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. So it was well known that Jesus was a prophet, he was a miracle worker, and perhaps even the promised Messiah. To the crowds, Jesus wasn't just the Messiah, he was the one who would establish his kingdom through power and through might. Uh, Most likely involving soldiers and armies and swords and chariots, right? He He would overthrow the Roman Empire and once again, the Jews would be free. Free to rule in prosperity forever. So from the people's perspective, Jesus coming to Jerusalem like was his triumphant entry where he was finally saying, I am king and now I will take over and establish my kingdom forever. That's why in verse 13 in today's scripture it says this. They took palm branches and went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. So the word Hosanna means, Lord, please save us. Um, The crowd is basically quoting Psalm 118 when they say this, uh, which says this. Please, Lord, please save us. Please, Lord, please give us success. Bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So they saw Jesus' arrival as a king coming to assume his throne, right? And he was, just not the way that they were expecting. All of their expectations, Jesus turned upside down. It is the upside down, inverted nature of the kingdom of God. 
A kingdom that is opposed to any worldly system, any worldly government. It is a kingdom that embraces the principles that are central to who Jesus is. A kingdom where the least are the greatest. Where God uses the foolish to confound the wise. Where God's power is perfected in our weakness. Where to win, we must lose. And to live, we must die. A kingdom where a king coming to assume his throne looks like a convict walking towards his execution. Not the king that anyone was expecting. And not the kingdom that they were expecting either. Here's a second observation uh, regarding this story of Palm Sunday. So what's with the palm branches? Like, what exactly would the palm branches have meant to the people of Jerusalem? Right? Sometimes, sometimes we retain a symbol, but we forget like, what, it, what it meant. So let's take a, a trophy, for instance. Um, we all know what a trophy represents. It's a, it's a symbol of victory, right? But if a thousand years from now, like an archaeologist dug one up, they might not know that, right? They might, they might think that it was just like a house decoration, right? Like little gold-painted golfers or soccer balls or someone throwing a football or someone doing taekwondo, right? So it's the same with palm branches. Um, to these ancient Greco-Roman people, the palm branch's primary meaning was victory, right? An athlete who won a competition um, wouldn't have received a trophy, they would have received a palm branch. If you were a lawyer and you won a case, right, you might put a palm branch above your door. If you were a general returning to the city like in, in triumph, right, you might hold a palm branch in your hand. There was even a special toga called a toga palmata, um, which was covered with images of palm branches. And this toga was only allowed to be worn by conquering generals, right, during their triumphant procession. So waving a palm branch, right, it, it wasn't like to cool Jesus off because he was hot. It was a symbol of victory. Third observation. Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey instead of a horse. Why? So in Matthew's telling of the story, there's a, there's a little more detail. Jesus says this to his disciples in Matthew 21, 2. He says, go into the village over there. He said, as soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you are doing, just say, the Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take them. Now, in doing this, Jesus is fulfilling a prophecy made by the prophet Zechariah like hundreds of years before. It's in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 11. It says this. 
Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle, and your king will bring peace to the nations. His realm will stretch from sea to sea and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. Because of the covenant I made with you, sealed with blood, I will free your prisoners from death in a waterless dungeon. So the picture here is definitely of a king. Um, He is righteous, he's victorious. His rule will extend to the ends of the earth. And he will bring peace to the nations of the world and he will bring freedom for those who are in prison. This is definitely a king. But this is not, this, this is an unexpected king. His righteousness, his victory, they don't appear as strength or brute power, but he comes lowly and riding on a donkey, right? You can't go to battle on a donkey. You can't destroy the Roman Empire on a donkey. Now, this act of of weakness, of lowliness, doesn't mean that he wasn't victorious. His rule will extend from sea to sea, but his lowliness does not jeopardize that victory one bit. In fact, his lowliness will be the very means by which his kingdom will be established. His lowliness will be the very means by which peace will be brought to this world. His lowliness will be the very means that prisoners will be set free. We see that alluded to in verse 11 of this prophecy from Zechariah. All this will happen. Jesus will be victorious because of the covenant sealed with his blood. The covenant sealed with his blood. First time the phrase covenant of blood is mentioned in scripture is in Exodus chapter 24, uh, verses four through eight. I want to read it to you. Early the next morning, Moses got up and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. He also set up 12 pillars, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent some of the young Israelite men to present burnt offerings and to sacrifice bulls and peace offerings to the Lord. Moses drained half the blood from these animals into basins. The other half he splattered against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it aloud to the people. Again, they all responded, we will do everything the Lord has commanded. We will obey. Then Moses took the blood from the basins and splattered it over the people, declaring, look, this blood confirms the covenant of the Lord has made with you in giving you these instructions. So if you know the Easter story, you'll remember that on the night in which he was betrayed, the night uh, before he was crucified, Jesus told the disciples 
that his own death would be a new covenant in his blood. Right? Jesus' death would be the ultimate atoning sacrifice. A sacrifice that through faith in Jesus would bring us freedom, would bring us peace, and would reconcile us back into relationship with God. And that, that is why Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. That is why he is coming lowly, riding on a donkey. So that he, Jesus Christ, can be the ultimate atoning sacrifice. That's why he didn't come on a war horse or with an army ready for battle. Jesus didn't come to destroy his enemies. He came to die for them. To offer them forgiveness and salvation. The prophecy in Zechariah, again, says this. I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle and your king will bring peace to the nations. So the crowds were right to praise Jesus as king. They were right to shout, Hosanna, right? Lord, save us. They were right to expect that Jesus had come to Jerusalem to establish his kingdom. But they weren't quite right in how they expected he would do it. The story finishes with the disciples being confused. It's John 12, 16 again, but I want to read it in a different translation this time. His disciples didn't understand at the time that this was a fulfillment of prophecy, which is understandable. Jesus was the king, but instead of coming to Jerusalem on a white horse, he came on a donkey. Jesus was the Messiah, but instead of talking about overthrowing Rome, he talked about dying. It tells us in the second half of that verse this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. It's only after Jesus was glorified in his death and his resurrection that the disciples remembered the Old Testament prophecies like the one I just read from Zechariah, and they began to see how this all fit together. Now, here's another observation. We often don't think about it, but Palm Sunday is a highly charged political statement. Jesus came to establish a new kingdom. Right? But in his day, there was really only one kingdom that was recognized, and it was the kingdom of Rome, right? where Caesar was king, where Caesar was lord. Right? Any challenge to Caesar, Caesar's uh, sovereignty, was treason. It ended in death, right? which meant that when Jesus was ushering in his new kingdom, like there were two kingdoms in conflict. But it wasn't the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Rome. 
even though it looked that way. It was the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. Right? The kingdom of Rome was just a tool, the instrument used by the kingdom of darkness. Ephesians 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Today, there are still two kingdoms in conflict, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. In his book uh, called A Quest for More, Living for Something Bigger Than You, Paul Tripp describes the conflict of these two kingdoms like this. He says, we are all kingdom builders. The issue is, whose kingdom are we building? Let me take you back to the garden one more time. In that devious conversation with Eve, the serpent was selling her a better kingdom. In this kingdom, she would be the one on the throne. This kingdom would be about her will and her way. What Satan said he was offering Eve was something bigger and better. But what he really offered her was much less and infinitely smaller. Ever since that fateful day, human life and history has been shaped by kingdoms in conflict. The little kingdom wars with the big kingdom. The kingdom of this world wars with the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of man wars with the kingdom of God. This war goes on behind every human intention, decision, thought, word, desire, and deed. Everything everyone ever does is done in pursuit of the success of one of these kingdoms. This war is unceasing and inescapable because it is fought on the turf of each of our hearts. So it's the same conflict of kingdoms we saw in the throne room of heaven when the devil led a coup against the Lord and was kicked out of heaven. It's the same conflict of kingdoms that we saw in the wilderness after God rescued his people out of slavery, right? Moses was on the mountain getting instructions from God and the people were down there worshiping a golden calf. And here we are again on Palm Sunday conflict of two kingdoms. The true king has finally come. The kingdom of God is at hand. But it is not the kind of king or the kind of kingdom that people were expecting. A few verses later in the same chapter of our scripture, it says, it says this. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. 
So in this scripture, I imagine a conversation between Jesus and his disciples um, as they're getting ready to go to Jerusalem, kind of going like this. So Jesus, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And the disciples kind of respond like, here we go, guys. It's time. Because the king is finally about ready to take his throne and show Rome who's boss. Right? And then Jesus says, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And then the disciples respond, like, wait, 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 hold on a second. <laughs> What's Jesus talking about? Like, I have to die? Like, I have to hate my life? I'm not sure I like where this is going. Right? And then Jesus says, whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant will also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. And then the disciples are like, follow him where? Like, he, he means follow him to victory, right? He's talking about us being restored to power, right? Jesus' mission was not at all what they were expecting. Jesus came to be crucified so that he might rise again. He came to fall dead into the ground like a grain of wheat so that he would bear fruit. He came to lose his life in order that we might gain eternal life. He came to serve in humility so that we as his followers would follow his example. And not just to serve and love and show mercy and compassion and kindness to each other, but to those who are far away from Jesus, right? those whose lives still may be very messy, those who feel like they would never set foot in church because if they did, it would catch on fire from all of their sins, those who feel like they would never set foot in church because of all they've experienced of being judged or shamed or even hurt by well-meaning Christians. In the upside-down kingdom, Jesus shuns the ones who think they have it all together, the self-reliant, the religious, the legalists, and he gravitates towards the desperate, those who feel like they're at the end of their rope, those who recognize that they are in bondage, the enslaved, the corrupt, those who feel like they are totally undeserving of God's grace. And even as believers, we need to remember that we are totally undeserving of God's grace. Such is the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. When we see someone who's broken or addicted, or has some kind of sin in their life, 
Do we have the self-awareness to realize that we too are still broken, addicted, or have sin in our lives? Do we have the self-awareness to be able to praise God for the growth and the transformation he's done in our lives, be be honest enough and self-aware enough to say, here's where I still struggle, here's where I am still broken, Here's where I'm still addicted. Here's where I still sin. I grew up in an alcoholic, abusive home. I've told this many times, but my first couple years away in college, there were many times I would wake up in a cold sweat breathing hard and hearing my parents yelling my name. I told one of my small group leaders this a few years ago. Um, He was a retired army ranger. He immediately recognized it as PTSD. He gave me a little booklet to read about it. Um, I am so much better than I was But occasionally this still happens to me. Like certain anxiety producing things can trigger it. And I can find myself laying in bed wide awake, mind racing, unable to sleep, and filled with anxiety. Some things were healed right away when I came to the Lord. And some things have been more of a process of healing. Right? I'm better than I was, but I'm still broken. But the Lord has used this to make me lean all the more on him, depend on him. Since I'm being transparent, here's another area of brokenness. Because of how I grew up uh, and how embarrassed I was, about my home life, about how poor we were, how dysfunctional we were. The way I learned to cope with that as a kid was that I became became a liar. Like, I just lied to everyone, just to try to fit in. But it got to the point uh, where I had told so many lies, I couldn't keep track of who I had told what to, right? It was just, it was this terrible burden. And so I decided one day to just go to the other extreme. And I I began to just tell the complete unadulterated truth to everyone. Um, Which felt better. It like lifted the burden off of my soul, but it wasn't good either. Because uh, it it was often the things I would say would be inappropriate, sometimes shocking, um, and sometimes I would end up hurting people along the way, just saying what was the truth in my heart with no disregard or no regard to how it would be received or whether it was even appropriate to say that. So when I was training for ministry, I had a pastor who was, who was mentoring me on, on these things, trying to teach me like what was, what's appropriate to share in different settings, right? It helped a lot. Um, but I still occasionally get it wrong. 
right? I say things sometimes that I shouldn't say. Sometimes I overshare. Sometimes I say things that are inappropriate. Um, I'm way better than I was. Uh, but occasionally I am reminded that I am still broken. Again, do we have the self-awareness to realize how we too are still broken, addicted, or have sin in our lives? So addiction. Mm. Am I addicted to anything? Um, I'm positive. I'm, I am 100% certain I am addicted to sugar, carbs. Um, I start eating that stuff and I cannot stop. Like, it's kind of like a, ha-ha, it's a funny thing. It's not to me. Um, I remember in my teens eating a whole box of Little Debbie brownies and then chasing it down with a half gallon of, of eggnog. Like, in one sitting. And I still wanted more. Like, how many arguments I had with my wife where she's like, I just bought that ice cream yesterday and you ate the whole thing, you know. So that addiction caused me to eventually become a type 2 diabetic and my weight to balloon to 300 pounds. And I've told this story before, um, how I was able to lose weight and get off, get off my diabetes uh, meds through the grace of God, answered prayer, and diet and exercise. But the fact remains, like I'm still a carb and sugar addict. Like I recognize that weakness in myself, so I, I try to stay away from that stuff. Like it is so easy to get addicted to things, right? Could be alcohol, could be tobacco, could be illegal drugs, could be prescription drugs, could be gambling, porn, shopping, spending money, social media, video games, the internet. Ooh, could be approval from other people. Could be work. My whole identity could be tied up in my work, right? Could be self-harm. Self-loathing. Again, do we have the self-awareness to realize how we too are still broken, addicted, and have sin in our lives? So, so sin. In the church, we have a tendency to focus more on the visible sins and ignore the hidden ones. We can be so critical and judgmental about the sins that we can see while we ourselves are guilty of more hidden sins, like pride, self-righteousness, like greed, jealousy, lust, gossip. Here's some more. Holding a grudge, which is basically unforgiveness. Needing to always be right. Focusing more on finding fault in others rather than building them up or speaking life over them. Withholding good from others. 
seeing others as competition, boasting, being argumentative. We tend to look at Jesus and his kingdom through the lens of this world, right? Its values, its priorities, and we begin to mold and shape Jesus and his kingdom to conform to the values and priorities of the world in which we live. David Platt, in his book, uh, What Did Jesus Really Mean When He Said, Follow Me? He wrote this. We pick and choose what we like and don't like from Jesus' teachings. In the end, we create a nice, non-offensive, politically correct, middle-class American Jesus who looks just like us and thinks just like us. But Jesus is not customizable. He has not left himself open to interpretation, adaptation, innovation, or alteration. He has revealed himself clearly through his word, and we have no right to personalize him. Instead, he revolutionizes us. As we follow Jesus, we believe Jesus, even when his word confronts and often contradicts the deeply held assumptions, beliefs, and convictions of our lives, our families, our friends, our culture, and sometimes even our churches. And such belief in Jesus transforms everything about what we desire and how we live. Truly, we follow an unexpected king. Jesus continues to surprise us. He continues to reveal to us the upside-down, inverted nature of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, where the least are the greatest, where power is perfected in weakness, where to win, we must lose, and to live, we must die. If you get a chance, look through the New Testament and try to find every reference to resurrection, the new life in Christ, and becoming a new creation. You will see throughout um, that for there to be a resurrection, there has to be a death. You can't have a resurrection without a death. Okay? A death to a dream, a death to an ambition, death to our identity, death to our way of living, and certainly death to self. And it's not just once, right? It's death and resurrection, death and resurrection, death and resurrection. Like almost every single time God makes a promise for something great in the Bible, a new son, a new nation, a new kingdom, a new restoration. Uh, the people he makes the promise to try to accomplish the promise in their own strength and in their own ability. Until finally, they give up hope and they die to the promise and then God steps in and he resurrects their shattered dream. 
He fulfills his promise and brings resurrection up out of the ashes and brings new life. We often forget one of the vital truths of resurrection. And it's that there, is, there can be no resurrection without death. Death always precedes resurrection. If we want to experience resurrection in any area of our life, then we must die. I want to close by reading John 12, 24 again. I think this is a prophetic word for many people who are hearing this message today. It says this. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Let's pray. Lord, my prayer this morning is that you would prophetically speak to each of us where we need to die. What are we still holding on to that we need to let go of? What dreams or ambitions or things regarding our sense of identity or self-worth do we just need to let go of so we can experience your resurrection power in our lives? Or do we want to know you more? We want to experience your transforming power, your resurrection power. Lord, help us to understand that upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. God, where you say the least are the greatest, where you use the foolish to confound the wise, where your power is perfected in our weakness, where to win, we must lose, and to live, we must die. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.